Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, it is really wonderful to have Australian writer Meg Mason here to talk about her third book, Sorrow and Bliss, published by HarperCollins in September. Meg is an author and journalist who started her career at the Financial Times and the Times in London. Her work has since been published in countless publications, including The New Yorker, Vogue, Elle, GQ, and The Sydney Morning Herald, and Delicious, I saw. Her first book, Say It Again in a Nice Voice, a memoir of motherhood, was published in 2012, and her second book, a novel, You Be Mother, was published in 2017. Sorrow and Bliss, the book that we'll be talking about today, has been compared with the work of Sally Rooney and also to Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag. The Sydney Morning Herald described it as darkly funny and unsparing of its targets, but also gentle and humane. The Herald also warned, once you open it, cancel your plans. I would agree with all of those comments. I absolutely love this book and I'm just so thrilled to be talking to Meg about it. Thank you for having me. What would you say Sorrow and Bliss is about? Thank you. The getting the hardest question out of the way first, because I always think it took 90,000 words to tell the story and then we're supposed to reduce it down to two sentences. But I think um, for me, first and foremost, it's a love story, but it isn't a love story about two people meeting in the fireworks. It's a love story about the full arc of a long relationship from teens until Martha, the protagonist, and Patrick, her husband, are now in their 40s. But it starts at the end of love. So in a way, I suppose that makes it an anti-love story, and I've read it described that way. And then I think um, there's a sense that in which it's also a coming of age, but again, slightly in reverse, because Martha's real growing up occurs when she's 40 rather than 18. And I think for me, it's an exploration, probably in terms of theme, an exploration around what it means to be missing this chief piece of information about yourself. So in Martha's case, it's um, to do with mental health and not knowing this thing that you sort of know is there and you know that there's a gap in your self-knowledge, but you cannot find what it is. And yet you feel that it's shaping you. It's informing all your decisions. It's impacting all your relationships and always has in her case um, from sort of 17. And so it's a, um, it's an exercise in finding out that critical thing about herself um, and what the implications are when she actually does. Meg, could you read a, a short extract for us from the book? Yes. And I think you're going to start at the beginning with the opening few pages. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. Um, thank you. I would love to. So here we go. At a wedding shortly after our own, I followed Patrick through the dense crowd at the reception to a woman who was standing by herself. He said that instead of looking at her every five minutes and feeling sad, I should just go over and compliment her hat. Even if I don't like it, he said, obviously, Martha, you don't like anything. Come on. The woman had accepted a canapé from a waiter and was putting it in her mouth when she noticed us, realising in the same instant that it could not be managed in one bite. 
As we approached, she lowered her chin and tried to shield her effort to get it all the way in, then all the way out, with the empty glass and supply of cocktail napkins in her other hand. Although Patrick drew out his introduction, she responded with something neither of us could make out. Because she looked so embarrassed, I began speaking as though someone had given me one minute on the topic of ladies' hats. The woman gave a series of little nods, and then as soon as she could, asked us where we lived and what we did with ourselves, and if she was correct in thinking we were married, how long we had been, and how it was we'd come to know each other in the first place. The quantity and velocity of her questions meant to divert attention from the half-eaten thing now sitting on an oily napkin in her upturned palm. While I was answering, she looked furtively past me for somewhere to put it. When I had finished, she said she might have missed my meaning in saying Patrick and I had never really met. He was always just there. I turned to consider my husband at that moment, trying to fish an invisible object out of his glass with one finger, then looked back at the woman and said, Patrick's sort of like the sofa that was in your house growing up. Its existence was just a fact. You never wondered where it came from because you can't remember it not being there. Even now, if it's still there, no one gives it any conscious thought. Although I suppose I went on because the woman didn't move to say anything. If pressed, you would be able to list every single one of its imperfections and the causes thereof. Patrick said it was unfortunately true. Martha could definitely give you an inventory of my flaws. The woman laughed, then glanced briefly at the handbag hanging from her forearm by its little strap as if weighing its merits as a receptacle. Right, who needs a top up? Patrick pointed both index fingers at me and pumped invisible triggers with his thumbs. Martha, I knew you won't say no. He gestured at the woman's glass and she let him take that too. Then he said, would you like me to take that? She smiled and looked like she was about to cry as he relieved her of the canapé. Once he had gone, she said, you must feel so lucky being married to a man like that. I said yes and thought about explaining the drawbacks of being married to somebody who everybody thinks is nice. But instead, I asked her where she got her amazing hat and waited for Patrick to come back. The sofa became our stock answer to the question of how we met after that. We did it for eight years with few variations. People always laughed. Meg, thank you. Thank you. So the novel opens in 2017. Martha's husband, Patrick, has just given her a 40th birthday party. And then we learn very quickly that she's writing at the end of 2018 and that Patrick had in fact left her two days after the party. Let's start by talking about Martha and about her family. Could you tell us a little bit about her mother, Celia, and her father, Fergus? What are they like? So... The setting of her childhood is in a very sort of dilapidated London townhouse in Shepherd's Bush, which at the time she was growing up would have been fairly down at heel. Um, Fergus, her father, is um, she describes him as a poet um, who um, hasn't produced any poetry since his first poem when he was 19. He's been sort of struggling with his magnum opus since then. And Celia, the mother, she describes as the sculptor, Celia, Celia Barry, sort of she gets the definite article because she has actually produced art she sort of repurposes found materials into enormous sculptures um I've read Celia described it as a narcissist which I think is probably fairly close to the truth um she describes her childhood as um kind of living above a key cutter in a depressed seaside town with a depressed seaside mother so none of them have had a you know particularly easy ride and then it's a fairly bohemian existence Celia just wants to be out in her shed Fergus kind of is raising them but he's a fairly gentle sometimes ineffectual man and then Martha has this um sister called Ingrid and I think that's the saving grace both in her childhood and in her adulthood is this sister and this incredible sort of they talk about you know existing in their own force field and kind of some being survivors of that childhood um, and they remain really close even though 
the life decisions that they make take them eventually in quite different, well, very opposite directions. So Martha ends up, um, you know, she's married, but doesn't have children. Ingrid has four mad children by the end of the book. And um, so that's sort of, that's the setting. And then Patrick enters as a family friend who comes to sort of Christmas with the cousins um, when he's 14, Martha's 17. And, you know, he does in that, I guess, in relation to the sofa become a piece of the furniture. She meets him every year. Um, but doesn't see him. What's Martha's relationship like with her mother? It's Martha describes um, when her experience of mental health begins, mental illness, sorry, begins. Um, she talks about a little bomb going off in her brain when she's 17. So she wakes up one day and over almost overnight, she's become hugely unwell, doesn't know what's happened to her. And that's when the, you know, the quest to find out begins. And I think in my imagination, she and Celia have, always had a fairly problematic relationship and that becomes almost not a breaking point, but the beginning of this, um, you know, devolution where by the end they're barely speaking. I think Celia would be an incredibly difficult mother to have. She's very selfish. Um, she sort of describes herself as a conscientious subjector where domestic matters are concerned. So she leaves it all to Fergus. And I think Martha's relationship with Fergus is obviously the foil. When she becomes very unwell, she sort of starts to spend every day in his study where he's working away and she just sort of lies on the sofa and that's where she feels sort of the safest when she's with him and he's just working away in the corner and they do have this lovely connection. But I think at one point she talks about, you know, his desire to help her has always exceeded his ability to help her. So I think he's loving, but he isn't able to really... Um, provide what she needs. So I think, yeah, they're both tricky relationships. There's both deficit at the, at the core of both of those things. And when Martha turns 17, she says a little bomb goes off in her brain. What actually happens to her and what, what treatment does she get? So she, she wakes up in this morning and she's um, already crying. She says there's already tears sort of leaking from the corners of her eyes. She can't feel her hands and feet, all of these physical symptoms. She's terrified. She suddenly has acquired this terror for noise. You know, her skin is crawling. She gets up and manages to look in the mirror and she sort of has this, you know, purple bruise and she's just, um, she, it's the day of her final A-level exam. And so she goes off, she realizes she can't write. She can't see the paper comes home and goes into the space underneath her desk and then eventually becomes so unwell that she can no longer come out. She's just in this, you know, she says, um, you know, I, I would occasionally come downstairs for food in the bathroom and eventually just the bathroom. And she, I suppose maybe in the old parlance, it's some kind of nervous breakdown or, you know, a psychic snap or something like that. So of course um, her father takes her to the doctor, but I think, this is when, you know, this is becomes the first of a litany of doctors over the next, you know, 20 years at the novel set. And I think it's one of the things I wanted to explore in that is that I think women especially have a very difficult time getting a diagnosis in this field. And, you know, in terms of the research I did into this, you'll often read with a particular condition that it'll take a man on average four years to get the correct diagnosis and a woman, it will be 10. Why is that? I think. In my understanding, it's probably because historically 
women have been written off as hysterical or, you know, there's, there's more things to peg it on that it could be, you know, PMT or it could be just a more common or garden depression or it could be, you know, all of those things. And so for Martha, the first diagnosis she gets is glandular fever. And this is from a very dismissive male doctor who says, you know, um, some girls like the idea of taking something. So I'd suggest an iron tablet, but it'll just, you know, has to run its course. And you know, the next doctor, she says, you know, it's a more clinical depression or something like that. And of course, these things are just, they're around the edges, but they're never the real diagnosis. They're not correct. And Martha knows it. But of course, eventually, she just diagnoses herself as being too difficult and too sensitive because no one can find what's wrong with her. So it must be her. She is. And eventually everyone comes to concur with that, you know, diagnosis because it's too hard and, and it's just easier for it to be, this is who you are. So let's go back to meeting Patrick. You talked a little bit about him, but let's go back another step. Martha's mother has a sister called Wynne who lives in a grand house in Belgravia. Do mm-hmm. you want to talk a little bit about her and about the, the way that Martha's family spends every Christmas with Wynne at her house? Yes, absolutely. Um, so as you know, they grew up in this, you know, in this rather dire flat Winsome and Celia. And when Celia and Winsome's mother died, Winsome, who's seven years older, came back to look after her, so to look after Celia. So essentially raised her from the age of 13. And Celia describes it as losing Winsome as a sister at that point. So they've had a difficult relationship. Well, I think one of the important things that we we find out is that Winsome had actually got herself into music college at the age of 15, which was something that she was passionate about. But when the mother died, she left that. She gave it up. Exactly. So never had a career. And Celia's become this, what's described by, you know, a sort of review in the Times as a minorly important sculptor. And so I think it's what has also occurred there is that Winston's married money. Mm-hmm. Celia married, you know, a poet who's described as the male Sylvia Plath. So instantly there's that sort of bifurcation between their experiences. So there's jealousy, you know, and from Celia's direction. And I think Winston can't quite let go of the sense of being the older responsible one. So there's a great amount of tension there. Winston is much more, you know, three children, Pearl's probably Women's Institute, um, this glorious house that she's constantly renovating with significant pieces of furniture in it. And so they go there every Christmas. Um, Celia is partial to a bit of alcohol. And so that becomes a factor as well. Um, the three children, Winston's three children, the middle one is Oliver and he brings Patrick back from boarding school unexpectedly when, when Patrick's father has forgot to book him a flight home. So he appears. What do we find out about his background? We find out that he has been at boarding school since he was seven in that very sort of English shipped off, you know, with a trunk and that's essentially it for your childhood kind of way, which comes with complications of its own um, in sort of terms of emotional development. So he is very quiet, very nervous, very shy. Um, but I get the sense that he wants to be rolled into this family. He wants to sort of just be able to be there. And and so he sort of tries to background himself, but he he's found this family, which he doesn't have. He only has a father who lives in Hong Kong and is fairly, um, you know, negligent as a parent. So um, And his mother had died. Exactly. So I'm sort of shipped out the week after, you know, the funeral. And so I think that he is very much an end of, he's he's a single person do you know what I mean he doesn't have his own network he doesn't have a childhood in the same way they do but um and again from he's there from 14 it's not a spoiler to say that he sort of is in love with Martha from that very first Christmas and then obviously we meet them 
the next Christmas and the next because he comes back, you know, Winston's fine to, you know, by arrangement, there's Patrick and he he becomes an established part of it. But Martha's fairly oblivious to him to begin with, because, you know, when they're as teenagers, the age gap is enormous and it will have closed by the time you're even 25. But 14 to 17 is a big gap. So various things happen to Martha. Uh, including going off to live in Paris for a while. When she returns, she and Patrick become quite good friends. By this stage, she's now a doctor. How does the friendship develop into something more? They begin with, um, I'm trying to, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she, um, she and Patrick, she finds out, she's told by the cousin that Patrick's been in love with her for, you know, 25 years or whatever it is, 15 years at the time, probably. She doesn't believe it. She thinks it's ridiculous. But for some reason, there's an incident that sort of precipitates her asking him outright. And it's awfully embarrassing. He denies it. And then for a whole separate lot of reasons, she goes to Paris for four years. But in that time, she doesn't see him, but he becomes almost a factor in her imagination. She's in Paris alone and she's fairly disconnected from everyone. She doesn't come back to London. And for some reason, Patrick just becomes almost a companion in her mind because he's good and he's stable. And then of course, by the time she gets back and she's been thinking about him for four years that, you know, it's at Ingrid's wedding, there he is. And she realizes that she's walking up the aisle behind Ingrid and all of what she's doing, her bearing and everything, it's all for Patrick. And then they sort of, he drives her home after the wedding and that's where a friendship sort of develops from there. And I think it's, it must be about eight or nine months um, that they start to do things together. And she just experiences because she doesn't have many friends. That's part of it as well. She doesn't want to be a parent. So she loses all, you know, how women tend to fall away from each other when one lot has children, and the other doesn't, you sort of lose that common ground. Um, and so suddenly he, he is, is this friend and it becomes such a close friendship over time. And so, then by this, by this stage, they're in their thirties mm-hmm. and then, Again, it's not a spoiler because we know from the early pages that they ended up married. They get around to discussing marriage and Martha is at first very reluctant. And why is that? What does she say to Patrick? Well, she says that she, as much as she wants to be with him, she feels that he wants children and she doesn't. So this is going to be, she essentially says she's Sophie's choicing him because either he can be with her or he can have children with somebody else, but she can't have both. And he because he's been in love with her for so long, even if he wanted children, he's, he said, I want you more. And that's his decision. Um, and in that moment, Martha's willing to, you know, after sort of declining him a couple of times in this very, um, un, it's not an unromantic proposal, but it just happens in the kitchen while the kettle's boiling, which I think to me is romantic in its own way because it's so domestic and it's so small, which is actually how a lot of proposals go down. As far as I understand, they're not always on top of the Eiffel Tower. But there's something a little bit unusual about this one, isn't it? And that is that they've never had sex before. And that's a very funny twist. It's so memorable. He says, I just want you to know the first time it'll be rubbish. Okay. And she says, it will be rubbish. Actually, when I wrote that joke, I was not a joke. When I wrote that line, I was, um, because I've written humour for quite a long time in my, in my day job. And I remember thinking, (laughs) sounds rather self-aggrandizing, but I remember thinking, I don't think I'll ever write a funnier line than that. I think I've reached the pinnacle and I'll, I'll have to stop now because I was actually convinced that I'd plagiarized it because it just sort of, there it was. And so I had to go around Googling it to see if I'd read it anywhere else, but I hadn't. So, um, 
that's yes, that was what it is. And I think, I think even that's probably the anti-love story aspect because it isn't brilliant the first time, especially when you've known somebody for so long and it's absolutely the opposite of how it appears in films. So wanting to bring, I guess, a little bit of reality to that. And then it, of course does become this beautiful, amazing thing that um, having had fairly unexciting relationships up till then, this is a, this is a something that's different about him. It's that comfort that she has with him and that deep knowing um, of, of their long relationship. So I think um, he, he's happy not to have it, you know, that first day their proposal because he says he's saving himself for the right person. So I mean, all of that is hilarious. And then when they get to the stage where his flatmate's out and they both come home and they realise that this is the time and he says, should we have a cup of tea now or should we save it as a treat? <laughs> should we save it as a reward for ourselves? That all of that scene is just achingly funny. And so listeners know, as we discuss this book a bit more, you'll see that there are aspects of it that are very sad, but I really need to emphasise that it is laugh out loud funny a lot of the time as well. Oh, that's very kind of you because I think that... Um, obviously there are some really dark passages in it which I think what people tend to seem to be discussing first but to me those two things are um not they can't be separated from each other the humor and the sorrow it does what it says on the tin hopefully but I just think I think you couldn't have one without the other and to me even though there are even within some of the darker scenes there there can be some humor because life is ridiculous do you know what I mean life is terrible and sad and hilarious at the same time it's not it's not even that you have these sad periods and then funny periods I just think they're all just a big intermingling um so that's that's how that came to be let's talk a bit now about the marriage so they do get married they um they go on a lovely honeymoon they come back and when they return from their honeymoon Martha says to us the reader I did not know how to be a wife I was so scared I wanted to ask you why was that and was it in part because of what she'd seen of her parents' marriage? Oh, I've never considered that before. If she was a real person, I'm sure it would be partly what she'd witnessed of what a marriage looks like. Um, this is her first true, true love, I suppose, of Patrick. And I think that um, by then, so she would be 33 or something like that, and she has been ill since she was 17, sort of periodically on and off. And so she, by then has already decided that she's this difficult person and she I imagine she doesn't consider herself someone who is um is desirable to such a stable loving kind person like she would feel like the problematic one in the relationship you know she talks about how she at one point she says I'm sick of being the ruiner of everything I'm sick of being the difficult one and in a strange way I think that you can almost become angry at the person who's perfect you know, in the relationship. And I think, I mean, to me, Patrick contributes at least 50% of the dysfunction. I think it's hidden nicely under how nice and loving and stable and kind and accepting he is. But um, as the marriage continues and the patterns are established, I definitely see him as a, as, you know, contributing because he's incredibly passive. Quite early in the marriage, we see Martha starts throwing things at him. Mm. That's, that's an example of Martha having one of her, let, let's call them episodes. Yeah, when she's ill, exactly. Yeah. Why does she do that and how does he respond? So he's a doctor and shortly after they get married, he and they've been spending all this lovely time together beforehand and then he he's moves to a different job and he's suddenly never around. Ingrid has just had a baby, which, you know, that's when oftentimes that, that um, sudden distance is put between you and a friend or you and your sister. 
and Martha just finds herself completely alone and she can't manage it and she becomes very unwell and and she sort of says she spends all day composing arguments to have with Patrick when she when he gets home and all she does is sort of sit around and read Lee Child novels waiting for him to come back and Ingrid's busy and um all of that sort of thing and so I think and then she does become unwell at some point and she just will have these explosions of rage that come out of nowhere and she likens them to the kind of fashion crises that Ingrid used to have when she was a teenager that suddenly she had nothing to wear and she would be suddenly white hot with fury and pull everything out of her drawers and then suddenly it was passed and it was all fine and so because Martha snaps out of it as quickly as that it's much easier for Patrick, who's probably not that emotionally fluent, um, to just pretend it never happened. And that becomes their dynamic. But he also picks up after her, doesn't he? He, he does. She throws things at him and he just almost lets it bounce off him. He doesn't comment. But then when she starts throwing, I can't remember what it was, but vases and things breaking, bags of garbage, mm. right from the beginning, he tidies up after her, doesn't he? Yeah. And the very first time she does it, he's so shocked. Um, and it's always her reaction seems to be outsized to whatever it was that has sparked it. So she, and, but she doesn't understand why she does it. It's almost like she's possessed in this moment by this rage that comes out of nowhere. And the very first time it happens, they, he then leaves the house to go to work and it's not, she's waiting for him to raise it that night to be like, your wife just threw something at you when you talk about it. He doesn't. She's actually then so full of shame that she's like, actually, I don't want to talk about it either. She's glad that he doesn't bring it up. And then that's it. That's the pattern that's established. He quietly sweeps up the broken pieces, puts them in the bin. It's never spoken of. And that's where this thing that's between them for her illness becomes this almost unspeakable thing that they will just continue to work around it and work around it until they cannot do that anymore. What model has he had of a marriage? We've seen the model Martha has had. The marriage between her parents, certainly when the descriptions we have when she's young is really quite dysfunctional. Maybe dysfunctional is putting it too highly, but it's certainly not a great model of a marriage. Yeah. Patrick hasn't had a great model of a marriage either, has he? He's had no model of a marriage because if his mother died when he was seven, he's sent to boarding school, the father remarries, but only latterly if he, you know, he would have gone home, spent time, you know, in this empty sort of, you know, one of those big Hong Kong type, fairly neutral apartments, that would have been his experience. So his closest, I suppose, marriage that he witnessed was probably between Winsome and Roland because he began spending holidays there with the family. So that would have been his, um, I suppose, his paradigm, which um, I don't know how helpful that marriage would have been to witness. I suppose it would have been a family, but it never seems like Winsome and Roland are particularly passionate about each other. I think Roland cares much more for his whippets than um, his rather busy wife. So I don't think Patrick's had any model whatsoever, but having been in love with Martha his whole life, essentially, that's what he wants. It's not about marriage. It's about her. Almost the marriage is secondary. He just wants her. And so I don't think he's probably thought much about how this is going to work and what a husband is and what his responsibilities are. So because he loves her so much, he would just do what is required to keep her in a way, not in a possessive way, but he just wants to be with her. So he's not going to challenge her behavior when it's um, as dreadful as it is. And there's something important I think that we should mention as well. From what we've described, listeners might be thinking how difficult this marriage is, but we haven't talked about the good parts of it. When the marriage is good, it is very, very good. There's a lovely uh, anecdote at one point at a difficult time in their lives when they go away and they jump off a bridge naked together and she says to him afterwards do you ever think we're the best Patrick 
so we do also see the moments of bliss that when this yeah. marriage is good, it's yeah. very, very good. Yeah, and they're the tiny moments and they're the moments to me that are the most romantic because they're just these small, private, seemingly inconsequential times. Um, yes, like you say, deciding to jump into that river um, when they've gone on a car trip and it's freezing and he sort of helps her to, you know, he pulls her out when she, you know, the water's so cold that she slightly goes into shock and he's the one who helps her up the bank and those sorts of things. And I think there, I, I think there are enough of those moments, as you say, when you read it as a whole, it isn't a dreadful marriage. It doesn't seem doomed from the beginning. It's actually a wonderful, you know, when he's, she moves into his flat when, um, when they get married and he says, do whatever you want to it to make it feel like home. And she loves it after this madhouse she's grown up in. Um, she's incredibly messy. He doesn't make any attempt to, you know, correct her in that way. He just wants her to use a budget spreadsheet. That's all his, you know, that's his only requirement um, or request. And so I think there are those nice moments and I do, I love them together. Those two, I think that they, um, I think it's a great love story between them. And Meg, there's something lovely that Martha's mother says to her at one point. Um, she says, no marriage makes sense. A marriage is its own world. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Is that one of the points that you're making? Would you like just to talk a little bit about that, about that concept that no marriage makes sense, I assume, to anyone on the outside? Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't you think that you'll often see a couple, or you know, a couple and you think, what do they see in each other? You know, you don't understand how it works and this combination of personalities, you would never put them together, but it must work. And I think one of the most amazing things about marriage is that incredible privacy and just between all of the things that occur just between the two of you that you you don't or you can't explain to other people. Again, I think it's those tiny moments together, you know, that language you develop of sort of um, more than in-jokes. It's like a shorthand. It's, you know, all of these and the, as these memories build up. And so you do form this, this world that only belongs to you. And I suppose that is um, the most precious part of it. And that's the part that is at risk with everything that's going on for the two of them and these forces that are kind of trying to pull them apart and it's can their sort of world sustain it but I love that idea that you know that in a couple it's sort of you and you and them against the world mm -hmm. and I think that's such a beautiful thing and I think that's what makes us all get married in the first place mm -hmm. because it's that incredible alliance and I think that is one of the most amazing things about Patrick is that he is always on her side um and I think she does her best, but she, and I think when I know that she is spiky and I know that she does dreadful things, but whenever she does something awful in the book, and obviously we meet her at her least, um, you know, when she's her most unhappy. And so she's at her most awful because we're always awful when we're unhappy. Um, she, whatever she does, it's always with um, an acknowledgement that it's terrible. She's never blithe or she's never um, tries to justify what she's done. She's quite quick to always point out how terrible it is because she knows it, but it doesn't, she cannot, she feels like she has no choice over it. She can't seem to do what other adults do, you know, in terms of self-regulating. Let's move then to talk about the mental illness that she has. And I think that's a very important part of the book. Um, I gather that they've been comments or, or criticisms about her as an unlikable character. I have to say that's not something that I ever felt as I read it. No, what's very clear, and you make it clear right from the beginning, is that she has an unnamed mental illness, and we, we get various glimpses of that through the novel. And what's very difficult is that she knows that something's wrong with her, but she doesn't know what that is. And it seems to me that that illness impacts on her life in all sorts of different ways. So as you said, she doesn't seem to have very many friends. 
She doesn't have very much of a career. By the time she's married to Patrick, she's writing funny food columns for Waitrose, which is lovely. <laughs> but it's not a big career. So it certainly seems it's in, that her illness has impacted on her ability to make friends. It's impacted on her ability to have a career. And what has impacted on the most is her marriage. And we've talked a little bit about how Patrick deals with her, we'll call them episodes. How does it make her feel? And I think, you know, you talked about it, that she feels a lot of shame after she throws mm. something at him or she collapses in tears. She feels guilt. She feels shame. She she beats herself up a lot about it. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, about the pain for her of having this illness that can't be mm. identified? She doesn't really know what it is. She knows there's something wrong with her. And the way that even though it's an illness, so it's therefore obviously not something she can control, she feels shame and embarrassment and guilt about it. Yeah, and I think I think because it began when she was 17, so this became a factor in her life before she was ever an adult. So she's there's some kind of arrested development, you know, that's sort of come out of that. And she hasn't learnt to take responsibility for herself. She doesn't feel that she's ever had an opportunity to make decisions separate from this thing because it's it seems to be at the core of her. And as you say, it's it's unnamed. So she doesn't know how to work around it. She t- takes all sorts of medications. Nothing seems to work. Um, and so it becomes who she is to an extent. And she talks about, um, you know, labels and the idea of having a label and she almost longs for a label because she wants to be able to say this is what I'm like and this is why but she can't and so of course shame accumulates and I think obviously Celia is instrumental in that because from the minute it happens Celia can't be bothered with her anymore it's too hard and she just you know Ingrid is sort of begging at one point Martha to come out from under her desk and Celia says she'll come out when she wants to and that's pretty much you know it from that point and so of course that's made her unacceptable to her own mother she's forced Ingrid to start caring for her and I think that um you know any of us who have experienced that and have needed to be cared for or we've cared for other people in that situation there is so much shame because you're a burden and you know that you're a burden and you can't snap out of it as much as you wish you could and you know you've ruined the family holiday or you ruined Christmas and you continue to do these things and of course you're filled with guilt and you see how it's affecting people and yet you cannot seem to outrun this thing you know and I think that that's what happens to her and she um she doesn't I mean I suppose she's she gets a positive reinforcement from Patrick but you know, if you're the one lobbing the hairdryer at your partner, you're hardly going to blame him for it. Do you know what I mean? And I think, but because the shame is so intense, and again, to refer back to Ingrid's fashion crises, because the parents never make Ingrid apologize, she knows they're all still thinking about it. And she is so ashamed that it actually makes her angry at everybody else. And that's certainly what Martha does is that she is so full of shame that it manifests as anger. And that's when things start to get very tricky um, with her and Patrick, because she's filled with rage, you know, towards him or this dynamic. And it's because there's nowhere, there's no outlet for all of this. And there's no, um, uh, it's, it's just incredibly difficult. And she probably doesn't like herself all of that much. You know, she, she's the problem. And so that's not an enjoyable way to be. There's a great quote, and I think it's pulled out on the, on the back of the book. An observer to my marriage would think that I had made no effort to be a good or better wife. They could not tell that for most of my adult life and all of my marriage, I have been trying to become the opposite of myself. There's an enormous amount of pathos in that statement. It, it reveals that she knows that there have been problems. She knows that people might judge her as badly behaved. She knows that people might judge her as having been a bad wife. 
but it's it's almost like a, a cri de coeur, a cry for help, mm. that she wants people to understand, I have been trying, I'm, you know, mm. I've actually been trying to be the opposite. It seemed to me that what you were trying to say was something about this whole concept of people with mental illness who are judged or labelled um, and not understood and not being able to make themselves understood and the, the way that that then turns back on itself and they feel ashamed of themselves. Mm. And I think especially if it's something which, you know, and again, you've talked about the condition and what it might be. Um, for me, that's inconsequential, but it's not, a, you know, a depression related to circumstance. It's clearly some sort of neuro non-typical thing that is in her so therefore it's not her choice and who would choose to be like that do you know what I mean I think we when we're in the depths we sort of think oh I wish you know I wish I wasn't like that but it's it was never voluntary um so I think that's the that's the unfairness of that's the injustice of it for her is that she doesn't she can't just choose to be a different way as much as she's tried to be this and she's tried to be that and she's tried to have a career and all of these things and it just seems like there's just so many forces arrayed against her ever being able to quite be who she knows she almost should be or, or would have been had this thing not happened to her. Mm. So it's, you know, and that's where for me, even if she is difficult in all those ways and she does terrible things, but for me, that's where I feel so much compassion for her. And I think what you do see, because there are these vignettes throughout the book that are just tiny little moments or scenes or observations that she makes. And a lot of the time she will, and, and, you know, in the section I read, which is where the book begins, she shows immense compassion for other people, like because she feels too much and she is almost, you know, I sort of thought of her as just so permeable to sorrow and other people's sorrow that she, she does demonstrate huge compassion towards other people just not her main people so they often tend to be strangers so I think she's not a monster but she just can't do it is probably how I'd say um I wanted to return just for a moment to her relationship with her sister Ingrid mm-hmm. so that is a uh, one of I shouldn't say one of the great strengths because there are so many strengths in this novel <laughs> but it's one of the most beautiful things in the novel and what really comes up they're both very funny they're completely on the same page. They can, and, and in this way, it differs from Fleabag, of course. There are <laughs> elements of it which are very Fleabag-like, I think, mm-hmm. except that Fleabag and her sister are diametrically oh, opposite. Oh, yes, that's true. Whereas these two are so similar, they share the sense of humour, they're on the same page. But something that I thought was interesting, at one stage late in the day, by the time Ingrid's had her three or maybe her four children, she turns around and says, you've worn me out. I just, I can't be caring for you anymore and also be caring for my children. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me that that was a real parallel with the relationship of Martha and Ingrid's mother, Celia, with her older sister. Yeah, I suppose you're right that that actually, and, and don't you think that's true within families as much as we might try and be something completely different, we just end up emulating whatever it is we've witnessed and what we've seen and we sort of cannot you know, get away from whatever our our legacy, our sort of spiritual legacy is as much as we want to be something different. So yes, and that's obviously a devastating moment for Martha because Ingrid has just been, you know, that's sort of the love of each other's lives in a a way, Um, you know, again, as co-survivors of this mad childhood and um, they are so close and they have their own shorthand and they find the same things funny and you know, it's, it's again, it's sort of them against the world. Um, and so I do, I do love that relationship. And it was always such a pleasure when I realized that, oh my goodness, Ingrid is about to walk onto the page, you know, and I knew that I had the day to write her because she was, and she's such a relief, I think. And I think she also shows maybe that, um, that there must be something magnetic about Martha, because if these people are willing to stick around and love her so much, something about her that, that makes it worth their while, you know, whether it's that she's funny or whether it's, she's just, 
you know, charismatic in that way that some people are, even when she's at her worst. Um, and I think Ingrid is a, it's a lovely, I think they're lucky to have each other. <laughs> they are. They certainly are. Meg, you've written before, your, your two earlier books were more focused on the concept of motherhood and uh-huh. being a mother and what that experience is like. And you touch on that in this book. But it seemed to me that the real focus was looking at this idea of what it would be like to have an unnamed mental illness and what impact that would have on your life. Mm-hmm. What made you choose to write about that? Is that an area that you'd have done a lot of research in before? Did you do a lot of research before you wrote this novel? What made you decide to make that the well, one of the central themes, I yeah. suppose, of this book? Well, I think um, <laughs> it's always been a preoccupation if I look at what I've read since university. So, you know, I adore Virginia Woolf, Janet Frame. You know, I remember being so affected by the yellow wallpaper when I read that Charlotte Perkins Gilmore in university. And so clearly it's been some sort of, you know, um, hobby or area of interest of mine. Um, I think that I'm interested to tell it from the perspective of the actual person themselves. And I think I wanted to show that um, when I've often read um, maybe more contemporary novels about mental illness, um, they, they are about depression and they are depressing. And I think that I wanted to show that um, someone who is also attractive as a human being, who, who um, I wanted to try and explore that, that she can be more than just this thing, as central as it is. Um, I think in terms of the shift in subject matter, is just that I had said everything I had to say about motherhood. Mm. So, um, you know, I'd written about it for magazines, very much first person. My own experiences, say it again in a nice voice, was sort of, you know, in fact, one of the characters. Great title for a book, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Um, one of the characters um, who is a friend of Martha's is a sort of 70-year-old man who's her editor at World of Interiors for a time, and he's this gorgeous, he's called Peregrine, and he sort of wears velvet in the day, and he loves nice things, and, you know, they play sort of word games together while they're out at lunch eating oysters. Um, and he says when Martha tries to write a novel that all first novels are wish fulfillment um, and autobiography. And I think for me, my first books were almost flushing that through. I had to kind of get that out of my system, right where I was at the time, because, you know, I was 30 when I wrote my first book and right in the absolute, you know, (laughs) eye of the storm, eye of the lovely motherhood storm. And then sort of, you know, there was an exploration of that, some of the same ideas in fiction, but they were very much now, I don't think I could ever turn, turn back to motherhood as the central theme. I think any book I write will always have mothers and daughters because that there's just a world in there for me, but I can't imagine writing anything where the mothers and motherhood are the central theme. So this was definitely a conscious decision to step away from that. And even in style, and um, it's very different from anything I've written before, which was an accident. It kind of just evolved out of the circumstances. And when I first showed it to my publisher, she said, you know that you're passing through the Rubicon with this one, don't you? And you can't go back. And I was like, brilliant. Yes, I don't want to go back. So hopefully I am, I have passed through some sort of rubric and then I have no idea what I'll be able to do next because this has kind of been quite a seminal experience for me. Um, so we'll see about that. But definitely it was a decision to take a different, a step in a different direction, to paint myself into a corner in a good way. Well, Meg, it's an absolutely fantastic book. I really loved it. I really recommend it to anybody that's listening and I wish you all the very best of luck with promoting it in far less than ideal circumstances. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, 
please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.